Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories with Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests. Our resident network leader, Jared Seehofer of Enzyme, and uh, Jenny Rook of uh, Genoa Ventures. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Uh, Jared, welcome as well. Thanks very much. Jenny, why don't we start with a brief background of you and Genoa. What is the work that you do at Genoa, and how did you come to start it? Well, at Genoa, we focus on early stage companies that are innovating at the intersection of biology and other technologies. And by technologies, I mean not just software and tech uh, in the kind of tech sense, uh, but other technologies from silicon to fluidics to optics, really under the belief that some of the most transformative innovations that we're going to see in the next several decades are going to be uh, choosing from these different disciplines, integrating them together and bringing forward solutions that really are better than any of the sum of the parts. So we started Genoa to focus on this innovation space because what I noticed as a former operator in these kinds of companies and then subsequently as a venture investor is that they tend to really struggle to get expert early stage capital. And that's mostly because they aren't any one thing, right? They're a combination of elements. And so they don't fit into the healthcare box, right? They're not just pure biology or molecules. And they don't fit into the tech box because they do have a life sciences component and, and risks associated. And so any given investor in kind of those classic VC categories maybe has part of the puzzle, but is quite rightly often uncomfortable with the other parts. Uh, and so we wanted to really serve that, uh, that market of really exciting companies and help integrate across other investors as well in order to, uh, help catalyze the capital formation, uh, process for these companies from the very beginning through, you know, hopefully a, a great lifespan. Yeah. So you are, uh, known for being a uh, very modest Jenny, but you are, I, th- I, th- I believe the most successful uh, investor on, on Angelist, you know, the Angelist syndicates or, or maybe top two, but I, I think number one. Um, and so I'm asking you to be immodest here in terms of what is your superpower or collection of, of, uh, what is your comparative advantage? Would you say? Wow. Thanks. Um, Comparative advantage, I think it is, it's no one thing in the same way that these companies, it's not a single element, but it's um, having gone through a career path that included diverse technical education. So I came up through physics and computer science and then fell in love with genetics. And then my professional career involved strategy training at McKinsey, operational experience at a startup, uh, serving big pharma companies. Uh, and then getting into both venture and grants making at Gates Foundation. So really it's an integration of all those different kind of perspectives, expertise, skill set. Uh, I think that is what is difficult to replicate. Um, right. It's not, it's, uh, we had a phrase at McKinsey called a spiky integrator. So I have a, a depth in genetics, world-class education in genetics, which now is obviously quite relevant given right. the last couple of decades. I'm, pretty fortunate in that sense, as well as the ability to go broad and integrate and synthesize across um, other aspects. And as we're building the team at Genoa, that same differentiation is what we're looking for and, and what you'll find in each of our team members as well. Everybody has operating experience. Everybody has advanced degrees in the life sciences uh, and everyone has funding experience as well. So that ability to put all those pieces together, identify with the entrepreneur and really kind of get in there, roll up our sleeves and be helpful. 
So if someone were to ask you, hey, how do I become number one on an angel list? Uh, you, you would say, uh, or you'd credit it to your comprehensive education and recommend people. That's do a same. big part of it. It was the technical depth because um, sometimes I'm asked by other investors who are curious about the space, you know, what sources can I read? How do I come up to speed quickly on genomics? <laughs> really? You're asking me to say, how can I give you my six years worth of uh, academic training and a, you know, a blog post or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's kind of offensive. actually. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, totally. So I, you know, when I think about the investments, like you mentioned on, on Angelus that I've done, the reason I had conviction around each one of those is I was able to, of course, meet with the teams and understand what their strengths were, but also ask them, you know, show me the data. Like, let's go deep into the, the scientific data that's coming out of your systems. Show me the primary research. Um, let's see the publications, the grant applications. I think those kinds of sources are, are fairly unusual for, particularly for later stage. Um, investing, but I think they're essential for early stage investing where you're taking a bet on the science as well as, of course, the team in the market. For, for the more generalist uh, investor listening, how do you differ between biotech investing, life science investing, therapeutics, and healthcare investing? Yeah, I think the, the important thing to do is when one is having a conversation about the space is to make sure you're using the same labels as your, uh, your conversation partner. Uh, when I was at McKinsey, I, I um, had a, a, a somewhat uh, hilarious misadventure around this very uh, issue, which was we had a very large pharma client who had asked us to come up with their biotech strategy. I was super <laughs> excited. This was the year 2000, you know, the genome sequence, genome sequence, there are so many tools coming that could transform their uh, their business. And so I started kind of laying out the landscape of biotechnologies. And they said, no, 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 we want to know which antibody company we should buy. And so it was like a record scratch, right? I realized, oh, biotech, even then, for people in the space, means mostly large molecule drugs, for, uh, protein and antibody-based therapeutics. That ends up being an advantage for us in that uh, if you have the willingness to think more broadly about biotechnologies, then again, these companies that are biology, but not quote unquote biotech um, can uh, have a place to go. So what I, what I'll tell you, I think, I think many generalists or newcomers to the space often run into this is we, we take the word biotechnology literally. Um, so watch out for that. And mostly if you're talking to someone who's come from the healthcare space, when they say biotech, they're probably thinking therapeutics. They're probably thinking small companies. They're probably thinking antibodies and proteins. Uh, unfortunately, because that sort of connotation, it's hard to describe these uh, companies that are biology, but not biotech, right? Um, so we use words like life sciences, but again, I find that for practitioners in the art, that for them also means therapeutics. Um, so it, it, there's no elegant approach. I've started coining the, the term alt-bio to indicate its biology beyond biotech. And that's really where we focus. Jenny, could, for the audience, could you give some examples of things that would be biology but not biotech, like specific sure. applications? Yeah, absolutely. So I think probably one that 
uh, people might be most familiar with from the public markets would be Illumina, right? So Illumina is the king of DNA sequencing. They've taken in the last 20 years what was in my day in the lab, a very manual, very low throughput process. You know, be lucky if I could get 300 base pairs out of an experiment, right? Um, and made it such that you can actually sequence a human genome in a day for a thousand bucks. So that that's huge. So that's definitely biology, right? It's driving biology. It's transformed life sciences and healthcare broadly, but it's not a therapeutic, obviously. It may not, in many cases, even be clinical, although there are, of course, uh, clinical applications of DNA sequencing. Yeah, definitely not a monocle and antibody. <laughs> That's right. Um, right. Do you think that that definition, so you were saying Big Pharma's understanding of it in 2000 was biotech equals MABs. Do you think that still holds today, you know, 19 years later? Yeah. And, and to test that out, all I have to do is go to the annual JP Morgan Biotech Conference here in San Francisco in January. And it is, you know, therapeutics take up all the oxygen in the room. That's what everyone is talking about, which is great. I'm so glad someone's on that, right? <laughs> Making all our lives better, better. But again, part of why I started Genoa was that because therapeutics are so synonymous with biotech and take up so much of the resources and the conversation, uh, after years of trying to do the work that we do in AltBio uh, on other platforms, I realized we were kind of always going to be the other slice in somebody else's pie chart. I didn't want to do that uh, with my career, nor do I want the companies that we support to feel that way. This is, this is our focus. What is your thesis at Genoa in terms of what are the subsectors that you're, you know, ex- that you have and you're excited to invest in? And more importantly, what are the ones that you've chosen not to invest in? Yeah. So our, our thesis really is around this biology technology intersection. So it's a technology lens on the world. And then seeing that cross product show up in kind of a couple different vectors. One is a category of discussed a little bit, which is technology that drives biology, get more data out of biological samples, more insights can lead to drug discovery, can lead to other uh, applications as well. The other direction, which is more of an emerging space, I would say, is the engineered biology space. So biology as technology itself, as tools like CRISPR-Cas gene editing come online, we can actually shape biological systems, screen them in high throughput for desired functions, uh, that's a really exciting category when we're actively investing in. And then, of course, overlaid on all of that is the recognition that healthcare is just one of the bio-based verticals. Others are agriculture, chemicals, many consumer products, food is a good example, are bio-based and haven't seen the same degree of transformation as we've enjoyed in the healthcare space. So that's the other piece of our, our thesis. When you look at other firms who are investing in the space, I'm curious how you think about where you differ philosophically. So on the more tech side, so, you know, Dreesen, Lux, you know, uh, longevity fund, the work that Laura Deming is doing. How do you, how do you feel that you sort of strongly differentiate or where do you feel you strongly align, like in the market in terms of other venture firms? Yeah, this is a super important question because like I described before, we view our role in uh, supporting our companies partly as being an integrator across other investors in a bespoke way for each company, right? So each company is characterized by its own um, combination of technologies and background and market. And so 
we certainly have some of that and that willingness to integrate, but we also can reach across the archipelago to the life sciences investors, to the tech investors, to the specialists in certain markets that can be corporate venture. Um, so it's very important to us to have that mental map of the universe of uh, investors who are like-minded and are going to be value-added syndicate partners. So where we sit on the on that map and how we differentiate, again, early stage, deep science, willingness to look at applications out of biology outside of healthcare. That's already pretty distinctive. Um, and the level of focus. So you mentioned Lux, I would say in many ways, really admire what the founding team built there. And, and some there's some very similar cultural elements. Yes. Their technology lens is, is broader than ours, right. at least today, right? We're just getting started. Perhaps we'll, we'll broaden. Uh, but, you know, Lux would be an ideal partner for um, a life sciences, technology, deep tech, company. Perhaps uh, we might bring some of the genetics, they might bring some of the hardware, vice versa. And was it hard to say, you know, someone like Lux would say, hey, you know, we can bring people, we should invest in everything. And you get the sort of sense of focus, or I, I get that, but is it hard to say no to sort of wide swaths of, of, of the category where there's exciting things happening? It is hard to say no, given that so much of it is is very exciting, very interesting. The people are very compelling and you want to be useful. But just like someone building a startup, so much of the art of success in this space is aggressively saying no to the things that aren't critical path, that you aren't committed to be best in the world at. Which is not to say that larger firms with a broader scope aren't also doing that, yeah. right? They probably have orders of magnitude more staff and right. capital under management yeah. than we do right now. So we're staying focused um, in proportion to our current kind of resources and depth of expertise. And like I said, hope to grow the team over time with complementary expertise to be better able to partner. You know, one of the things people often bring up is, uh, is STEM centrics and how Founders Fund was one of the bigger investors there and that you're seeing sort of a rise of non-specialist, uh, tech VC making investments in, in life science, particularly software adjacent life science. W what do you think about this? I'm pretty excited that, that firms with expertise in tech investing are getting interested in life sciences. I will tell you, Five years ago, when I made the seed investment in Zymergen, it was a pretty lonely space to try to, try to promote what was clearly going to be one of the most exciting life sciences-based companies I had ever seen in any category. And first went to my healthcare venture colleagues uh, around the country, and even the ones who do go early and were um, open to understanding the exciting technology there said, look, it's, it's chemicals. It's not healthcare. It's out of scope for us. And so the company and the um, syndicate really benefited from those early days of great investors like True Ventures and DCVC coming in and saying, look, we're excited about the automation component of this, the data component of this, and then putting together that diverse syndicate. So I think that's really important because I will tell you that many of our companies at Genoa have things like products and customers and revenues, and that might not sound revolutionary if you're coming from tech, but if you're a healthcare, a hardcore healthcare investor, you may never have to deal with customers. You know, your P&L is probably always negative for your, for your companies because you're looking to sell those as assets, maybe after a successful phase two trial. So there's just a whole set of skills and culture and thinking that I think tech actually brings a lot of the best practices from. Um, and so, again, very happy to work with with like-minded investors there who bring those complementary capabilities around business building, even if the technology expertise is a different 
um, pillar. Now, that being said, uh, as one of my LPs recently noted, he said, we see a lot of tourists in this space. Uh, it is, it is dangerous as well. I think there are so many uh, best practices and implicit assumptions to investing in tech that must be challenged when one um, expands to thinking about physical assets, whether that's life sciences or hardware or otherwise. If anyone's dabbled in hardware, life sciences is orders of magnitude more complex. And so if you don't have a humility for the laws of physics and you can't, you know, pivot and passion your way through those, you're going to waste a lot of LP money learning that lesson the hard way. So as a, as a corollary, you kind of set up the next question quite beautifully with regards to danger. Um, do you think there's a, uh, a fundamental misappreciation among the tech community for, the complexity and depth of biology. You mentioned earlier that, uh, oh, you know, someone wants to sum up a, you know, graduate level amount of work in a blog post. And, you know, we're, we're kind of at the end, end, uh, time game of the Theranos saga. And famously, you know, when Theranos launched, a lot of people, myself included, who had, uh, you know, uh, biochem, uh, or a life science background were saying, like, I don't think that works. You know, there's a reason, there's a reason we do Venus draws and a reason that no one's tried, you know, no one's tried, uh, you know, capillary sticks before and a reason why you can't make, you know, however many nanoliters of blood go, you know, to 14 different tests, no matter how many buzzwords you throw in. And the, and, you know, the people with the domain expertise were saying, like, really applaud the the ambition but as you just you put it so perfectly like you couldn't can't like pivot and passion your way through the laws of physics but the reaction from the tech community at the time and this was before all of the you know the wall street journal reporting came out was incredibly negative and it was oh you're such a naysayer i saw several vcs say something to the effect of peer review is overrated (laughs) yeah (laughs) which to me is just like oh evidence is overrated in a product that's going to diagnose whether people have, you know, you know, very uh, important chronic conditions. That's, that's, that's that they're going to make health decisions based upon. Right. So, so what do you think? Do you think that's changed at all? Do you think there's still this sort of, uh, you know, this uh, misappreciation or underappreciation? Like, look, software companies, you don't need, you don't need really an education for, you need, you know, intelligence and grit and determination, be able to, you know, all of these things. How, How do you think about that? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I would say there's a full spectrum though, right? So I think, um, a full spectrum of, uh, what you described, which is sort of the, the hubris and almost, um, refusal to look at data or to be constrained by the facts, uh, which can get you far in some cases versus a, a desire to learn, a desire to, as many um, great firms have done, bring in uh, partners with deep life sciences expertise to help you know, keep them on the on the path to excellence. Um, so, you know, hard to comment on the, the space broadly, but for sure, you, you, you see the full, the full range. People ask me, about Theranos. And, and I say, look, no one in my industry ever thought Theranos was in my industry. Just there was, there was no allure. First of all, because I had seen literally a thousand pitch decks with the same ambition. No joke. No, by, by that time with a decade of investing in therapeutics and not sorry, sorry, by that time, with a decade of investing in life sciences under my belt, and again, a focus on technologies that get information out of biology, 
every postdoc who every ever came out of any biosensor lab or with a nucleic acid amplification tool had made the point of care diagnostics pitch deck without knowing what that meant, what point of what care. So it's pretty easy to filter that out unless you have um, some really clear industry expertise on the team knows what clinical problem the team is solving and who's going to pay for it. And that was just never there. Yeah. How do you think about what kind of risk you're okay taking? What's your sort of your philosophy of risk um, as an investor in this space? Yeah, I think one of our specialties, and I, I really learned this toolkit from where I got started in venture, which is the Fidelity Biosciences team, Fidelity's healthcare venture group, now called F Prime Capital. Our, our specialty is taking early stage life sciences risk by looking at the available data, by thinking about what's happening at the molecular level, by talking to experts, and being able to evaluate the likelihood of success of biological development or hardware development that interacts with biology. And that takes extra time. It takes extra rigor. Um, but it does tend to have the nice, almost binary benefits that you can get out of therapeutics investing, right? Given, for example, evaluating the preclinical data for a molecule how do you feel about the relative risk of that molecule success in a phase two trial? Similarly, trying to bring that same kind of rigor to looking at, um, at biological data for a new platform for measuring therapeutic antibodies and their structure um, and whether that's going to be possible and robust and then, of course, attractive to customers. So I think, I think that is really what's um, sort of different about uh, Geno and our w- willingness to go early stage. But of course, you have to keep that in context as well. It can't be the only risk that you're aware of, because like I said, it has to be something that then can be scaled as a product that can be sold to customers, that can be paid for by budgets. So again, all the things that that tech investors are quite um, familiar with. And we think about all of those from the very beginning. Yeah. Is it important for you for the founders or one of the founders to have domain expertise, like entrepreneurs from different, you know, been successful in different fields coming into life sciences? Yeah. Actually, we love to see what I call chimeric teams, where either in one individual who has changed fields or in the the team collectively have uh, multiple fields that they're bringing together. Because again, that's where you get those collisions of ideas and innovations that um, others really can't touch. That was part of what was really so compelling at Zymergen, had such deep expertise in both that the genetics and the genetic engineering of microbes and automation and big data. It was just a unique tool chain for doing that work that was going to be hard to replicate for a while. So very much value domain expertise, but also recognize that it may come as an aggregate across the team. And it may come when you see an individual who, for example, in our company, IonPath, the founder was an electrical engineer, became a pathologist, realized he needed better tools to get more data out of pathology samples, built his own mass spec-based microscope. And so that's a pretty special set of, of domain expertise right there. Can you further delineate the subsectors or almost make a mini market map of, of what you're looking to invest in or perhaps put differently, you know, all the life sciences entrepreneurs listening to this podcast, if you can create sort of a request for start, if they were going to pursue whatever you, you wanted them to pursue and you can create sort of a request for startups of what you're, what you're looking for, what might be on that? Well, I would hesitate to 
direct entrepreneurs to do what I want them to do, because I think that's the cart before the horse in that venture capital is not the most important thing, right? Entrepreneurs and the problems they want to solve and the technologies they're able to pull together to do that. That's the most important thing. And some subset of those are going to be relevant for venture funding. And then for some subset of those, we're going to be the right venture capitalist. So we never think that that we should be directing that path. We just hope that when it aligns, we get to play a role. That said, the kinds of things that we are looking to play a role in, again, tend to have a combination of wetware, hardware, and software in the solution. So it might be an instrument that you plug in and the blue light blinks and you put biology into one side and data comes out the other side. We love all versions of that. And that could be for basic research. That can be for diagnostics. That can be sensors in the field for agriculture, uh, really a broad set of um, potential applications there. And then uh and then, like I said, that's other category of engineered biology where we're manipulating cells, manipulating entire organisms uh, to solve problems with the caveat that the, you know, a great um, subset of that engineered biology is therapeutics, right? So if you like monoclonal antibodies, like cell, cell therapies, including CRISPR edited cell therapies, that I would call engineered biology, pretty excited about all of that. But because that's in scope for classic healthcare investors and they're great at it, we mostly leave that to them. So we're looking for, for example, maybe engineered biology that might be complementary to those therapeutics programs. Like maybe it's a novel, evolvable vector for gene therapy, but not a therapeutic program itself. Or it might be out of outside of healthcare, like engineered microbes, plants, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where do you like to play in terms of stage? Uh, what's an ideal sort of, uh, you know, amount of proof or traction you're looking from for an entrepreneur or founding team before you think it's something that's uh, venture investable? Uh, it's a good question because many investors might say early stage and mean something very different, right. but that's good to, good to clarify well, we do love being the first institutional grade investor, not necessarily alone. Again, love to syndicate, as I've described, and to build strong syndicates from the beginning. Uh, and so that, that means a lot of our investments are going to be seed or series A. And what we're looking for at that moment, again, because many of these companies aren't following a standard playbook, right? They're kind of making it up, making up the category sometimes. What we're looking for is can the company in a seed stage period, 18 to 24 months, sub $5 million, get to a venture-like value inflection and be in a good position to raise an attractive next round, right? These are just the the mechanics of venture. And that can be different for each company. Um, as an example, in, in one of these categories that is our focus, like these instrumentation, analytical instrumentation companies, what we're typically looking for is for the company to be able to, within that 18 to 24 month window, get a product and it can be a prototype. It can be ugly, right? It can be something they have to fiddle with, but a product in a customer's hands who can then use that, generate data and say, yes, this is going to change my life. I can't wait to buy more. I can't wait to tell my colleagues about it. Um, Because that's that proof point that the company has made a thing that works that the market is going to want. And then of course, there's still more to do around product development and scaling and think about market segmentation, applications development, but that's a, that can be a huge value inflection for companies. How comfortable are you with kind of the idea of a product that 
um, will be in a sense a category maker or a market maker where you could find a, a passionate group of, of, of early adopters, but it's a very limited group. And you, and you know, there are companies that, that, that do this where they're able to sort of set like a stake in the ground saying, this is the way it's world is going to be. How do, how do you think through, you know, whether someone is right on that? The entrepreneur is their conviction is justified or not. I, I love this question. I think it actually goes back to Eric's question about when is it hard to say no? Right. Because often those are, as a scientist, the ones that are most heartbreaking to say no to. I've seen examples of companies that are bringing an almost entirely new way to analyze a biological sample, like a new way to do um, spectroscopy on a protein sample, right? And it's faster and it's easier to use and it's cheaper and yet no one does it yet. <laughs> so it's a completely new uh, discipline almost. And that is so exciting. Right? I think there's an enormous amount of room for that in in the space. But to your point, difficult to imagine that uh, this totally new way of thinking is going to sweep the market in a venture scale timeframe. Yeah, certainly, you know, it's going to be a while before that next round is possible, you know, just given that, you know, biology takes so much longer. Probably so. There, I think it's actually even more about the market. Let's say they already had the prototype working. Data is great, but it's a, they're often pretty expensive boxes, right? And no one's ever used them before. No one's got them in their budgets because they've never seen them before. And so the process of getting thought leaders to adopt them, generate novel biological, not just data, but insights that causes the rest of the research world to say, I'm missing uh, you know, a whole component of my biological inquiry because I don't have this way of looking at it. Super exciting, uh, but but often not a kind of venture scale uh, opportunity. So what would be your advice generally to an entrepreneur that might find themselves in that place? You know, to your example, completely new, you know, uh, means of spectroscopy. Um, is it look for sort of non-dilutive grant type funding? Is it, you know, hey, there are probably going to be angels that aren't going to, you know, they're in it for the long haul. Um, what, what would you say, you know, if you've got to let someone down easy and say, I really believe in this, it's not venture ready yet for this reason, but I want to try and help you kind of continue on with your vision. Well, grants are a very important part of advancing you know, truly transformational technologies. Um, SBIR grants are um, great, are very important to a lot of our companies um, to help get that early technology development done in a non-dilutive way. Uh, for something that's transformational, like the categories you're talking about, you can be thinking about bigger grants um, from some of the major government agencies that do have programs around truly transformational technologies. Plus, you also get into things like nonprofits and philanthropies where there might be like an XPRIZE type uh, challenge or a grand challenge from the Gates Foundation, where if it's you're truly changing the world, you know, they, they've got a, a floor. If it's not transformational enough, they won't touch it. And so it might be a better match there. A, a thesis we see more often, I think it's pretty hard to actually come up with a new way to look at biology. More often we see more efficient ways to generate the same kind of data. And so we, we think of that as a democratization thesis where a company says, ah, sequencing, you know, it used to cost millions of dollars and take a, up a, a, you know, a full room. Now here's a desktop sequencer or here's a desktop flow cytometer, making that more accessible to the broader research community. What else is uh, worth mentioning in terms of what's different about life science investing than, than um, more traditional tech and software investing in the sense of 
building, what's different about building a fund, portfolio construction, you know, should fund cycles uh, be different or, or investment periods rather? What else is different that you think uh, sort of more generalist investors should know about life science investing or, or, or fund construction? One answer I'd have to that is probably irritating to, uh, to folks getting into the space, which is that because of the complexity, stochastic nature, and irreducible unknowns of biology, there's a real premium on experience because versus tech, right, where we would say, look, we, we made up the internet, yeah. right? It is fully knowable. Yes, it has emergent surprising properties sometimes, uh, but it is, it is mappable and knowable. In biology, there are category, entire categories of molecules we don't even know exist yet. Right. So we, we don't even have a full list of ingredients or nodes or, or players. So it, it's not currently, and I would argue will never be reducible because once you have that level of complexity, there's a stochastic element that you can model, but not actually predict. And so as a proxy for being able to reducibly solve biology, having people who have walked that path for a while, and have in some, in some cases, they might not even be able to articulate why they know what to do and not do, but they have experience base. We would call it judgment. Really important for not because really smart, motivated people can't get there eventually, can't learn at all. But again, we're talking about within the confines of venture where you're always running hard against the brick wall and you don't actually have time to learn. <laughs> you just need to be going and you need to get success. And so I, th- I think that's what I would call out is at least having, if not on the team, on the core team, surrounding the team with the kind of judgment and experience that's going to help them avoid le- learning lessons that could be available to them if they just asked. Yeah. We're going to uh, move to our uh, overrated, underrated section of the podcast, and we will start with CRISPR. Well, CRISPR is a funny one because probably everything else on the list, I'm going to say overrated, but this was the first time in my career where something that had happened in the biological research world was on the front page of the New York Times. And I was like, yeah, that's right. That's a big deal. You know, <laughs> like, there's like, there's no hyperbole that's too big for what, what CRISPR is. And, and, and that's true in ways that frankly, we can't even predict. Um, and that's, uh, of course, there's already therapies coming, uh, through the clinic based on CRISPR based editing. But I would actually point to the transformation that will happen in the pace, quality, and breadth of biological research by making these tools available that are cheap, easy to use, high throughput, the set of things that people are going to figure out in the next decade that they couldn't because they didn't have the way to just give it a shot. It's going to be astonishing. So underrated, believe it or not. The uh, fire Festival. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, whole, whole genome sequencing. That's that's an interesting one. I'm going to say currently underrated. So if you rewind to a, a couple of decades ago, there was an overrated period where, um, again, it did hit the front page of the newspapers and sort of everything was declared solved. Um, that was overrated. But again, nobody, I think, in my field ever thought that was true. And so uh, so then there was the disillusionment period. And I, I think we're actually probably still in that a little bit. There's an, a sense of underrating, at least in the public, of the importance of whole genome sequencing. 
especially keeping in mind that most genomes we want to sequence aren't human, right? They're microbes, they're plants, they're animals. And as we're able to do more of those in variety, in breadth, there will be more insights that come out of that, particularly ones that have been manipulated with CRISPR to pose a new question. Blockchain anything in this video. <laughs> you know, I don't run into blockchain very much, uh, and I would be suspicious if I if I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. AI for drug discovery. Overrated. And I'll say I'll tell you why. I, I think it is similar to the initial kind of genomics wave. Uh, it has been overhyped by not putting it in context of the overall drug discovery experience. So do I think it's important and transformational and exciting? Yes. Again, see above. I don't think that we can get to all the insights we need around biology by being simply reductive. So the set of tools where we're able to say what's going on and how do we make predictions even when we don't know all the parts, that is awesome. But the output of AI for drug discovery is often a target you might not have expected that's great. And so the road from a target to a drug on the market is still 10 years of clinical trials and still a billion dollars. So at least for now, we don't have the evidence to be confident that AI-based drug targets or molecules are going to be more successful, for example, less toxic, more efficacious. They could be. In 30 years, you might ask me the question again, and I might say, ooh, underrated, because everything that was found that way now had twice the probability of success. I don't think that's going to be the case, uh, but we don't have the data yet to be sure. Uh, the recent sort of rise of popularity of, of longevity and where we're at there. I might put it on a different spectrum, not overrated or underrated so much as I think it's always exciting when biological questions are reframed around a new motivation or a new tag. And that's partly because it brings more people into the tent. So synthetic, synthetic biology is a good example. Synthetic biology, not necessarily in a bunch of new disciplines might say it's just genetic engineering with a new name, but what it did was bring in practitioners from other fields who were excited about the emerging tools for engineering biology, who hadn't been part of the conversation before. And that's going to drive innovation, which we love. So I, I think the same is probably true for longevity in addition to the set of researchers who now have a, a new target to kind of frame around and therapeutics developers who have a new um, outcome to measure against. There's also more engagement with customers who are pretty interested in, in longevity as well as funders who are, feel particularly motivated to advance solutions in the space. Biosimilars? Ooh, biosimilar is pretty exciting because if you look at the progress that has been driven by, back to your first question, biotech, quote unquote, the, the um, efficacy and safety profiles of biologics in treating disease has been incredibly exciting. And as you probably know, half of all new drugs these days are, are biologics. One of the issues there, of course, is that the expense around those while they're still on patent makes them unreachable for, for many global markets, at least. Uh, and so as we drive that whole space forward and biosimilars can be made available uh, to a, a broader set of patients, then I think the impact there is really exciting. Yeah. Cultured meat. <laughs> well, it doesn't, uh, we don't have it yet. So it's neither overrated nor underrated, isn't it? We'll see. 
you know? I think, again, I think the framing and the motivation is resulting in advances in thinking about cellular engineering generally, and that's exciting. And our last one, this idea of multi-omics data. Right. We call that science. <laughs> so, like, uh, you know, no scientist has ever relied on a single analyte to study their system. I will say that uh, what's exciting and again, core to some of our investment theses is that as one, uh, as the tools for any given omic, like genomics, you know, comes uh, online and available to a broader set of practitioners, then you get a shift in, in even the education and the development of our scientists who are no longer thinking, I'm a geneticist, what can I do with that set of tools? But I care about the longevity problem or the cultured meat problem. What are the various omics tools that I can bring together to, to solve that? And I think that's fantastic. So probably the concept itself is probably overrated because it's nothing new. Yeah, the buzzword overrated but the approach and the advances in making it a, a real thing, I think, can't overrate it enough. <laughs> yeah. How have you seen sort of the LP appetite um, for, for, for this space? And how have they either become educated or not become educated? How has that evolved over the decade plus that you've been doing this? Yeah, again, full, full spectrum there. I would say many of our LPs are of a type where they either are individuals or like a family office who... Um, have built businesses in the tech world and and delivered value there and, and and created wealth there, and then look over and see what's happening over here in biology and are pretty excited about that and see the the data component, see the technology analogies, and they they want exposure to that. Um, and so those are really some of our very best LPs. The the backers who supported me on AngelList as I was building that syndicate. I think many of them are in that in that category. Tech entrepreneurs want to participate in what's happening in uh, you know in the CRISPR revolution, and we're excited to be able to invest in companies like Caribou through the syndicate. Um, for the institutional LPs, I would say that is a much more cautious lot, and so they're not really that big into taking risks around investment thesis. They consider venture in itself risky enough. Um, so there, I think there's a lot of wait and see on the on the institutional LP side. Yeah. And for investors, entrepreneurs, LPs who are um, looking to, you know, heard this episode and would like to go deeper, would like to learn more about your work and where might you point them to? And any any last plugs that you'd uh, you'd leave us the audience with? Sure. Thanks for that. Well, uh, hopefully we've uh, described what we do and what we love, uh, including our example companies on our website, which is www.genoavc.com. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and I'm often at com uh, conferences like SynBioBeta uh, as well. So happy to chat with folks. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Jenny. This has been great. My pleasure. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 